the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to this 820 AM The Word broadcast special, Heart of the City. Pastors, ministry leaders, and churches have received a call to serve their communities with the love and compassion of Christ. The call is from God's heart to the heart of the city. Well, this is Heart of the City. I'm Chuck Olmstead, the Director of Local Ministry Development for 820 AM The Word. With me today is a special guest. His name is Henry Fisher, and uh, welcome today to Heart of the City. Thank you, Chuck. Well, good. Well, you and your, your bride are sitting here in the studio, and we have an opportunity to share today about your story. And um, we met a couple of weeks ago at an event, and uh, uh, you are the chaplain at uh, Monroe Correctional Center, correct? Um, one of two facility chaplains. I, uh-huh. It's called Monroe Correctional Complex. But I, Got it. Got it. Got it. And then we want to talk about that in a in a little while, but we always like to hear the the backstory of how people came to faith. This uh, this is one of my favorite things to do uh, throughout the week as I'm interviewing people is to hear their story because it's always uh, it's always something fresh. It's always different, usually about uh, you know about their their life of faith. And uh, you had mentioned to me that uh, you were actually born not too far from the studios at Harborview, so you're a Seattle, you're a Seattle boy. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chuck, I grew up in a home of atheists. My father is a distinguished scientist, but not a believer in God, and so that was my belief. Um, though I started to question it somewhat um, as a teenager, um, and went never went to church. Uh, until I went to college, and then I uh, attended a liberal college back east and went to chapel sometimes, and uh, fortunately, they never convicted me very much by their preaching. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, growing up as in, an, in a family that was—your dad was an atheist, was it like an overt instruction, or was it just kind of like never a discussion? Right. Sometimes they say, you know, values are, are caught than taught, mm-hmm. and yes, he assured me once, maybe, that there was no God. So I just trusted him because yeah. he was my hero. Right, right, and right. So where did you go to school back east? Middlebury College in Middlebury, Vermont. I see. Uh, that's, uh, yep, that's that's far east. <laughs> what was your major? Um, economics, political science. Yeah. So during that time in your in your college years, so you were kind of exploring life and exploring your mind, I would assume, you know, and learning and growing. Uh, what was going on in your spiritual walk? I mean, you attended church, but why? Well, I, in college years, I began to discern that there was something wrong in culture. I used to have great hope that we could reform the world, but I saw intractable human behavior. That told me that there's something, this notion of original sin, sort of, that there was a spiritual problem. And then I started dating a girl who was a Christian scientist, um, not Orthodox Christian, but certainly devout, and she was an excellent person. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I had started thinking spiritually and also was struggling with certain struggles with uh, temporary depression maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, she left my senior year and I just made a decision to attend chapel um, every Sunday in my senior year. But I, I really didn't believe – and I, I had this notion that you couldn't believe, that there was no evidence to believe in God. But I remember hearing a lecture on the resurrection of Christ by some Christians, and it really shocked me. I wish I had pursued the, the man and asked him more questions, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, was, I would have called myself an agnostic in college. I, I wasn't sure. I wasn't re- – but I, I needed evidence in my mind, that I could believe in before I could make a, a decision. Yeah, well, uh, it's too bad you didn't run across the book by Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ. You it wasn't know. published yet. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. I understand. So what happened? Well, I was in ROTC cadet and had an ROTC scholarship. The uh, Army sent me to Fort Sill, Oklahoma. And um, Oklahoma's a little bit different than Vermont. <sighs> <laughs> yes, it is. And Western Washington, too. Yeah, exactly. You know, I used to say it's not the edge of the earth, but you can see it from there. Right. And um any case, my first year uh, after the, the basic and officer courses that I went through were not successful for me. And I, I struggled personally. And uh, But I happened to have a specialist driver named Stephen Ellis, who was I discovered a born-again Christian. I happened to have a next-door neighbor named Dan C., a fellow lieutenant, who was a born-again Christian. And they were praying for me secretly, though I was resistant to it. Mm -hmm. But in November of 1977, I kind of took a a major test and flunked, basically, uh, through unusual circumstances. We'd prepared very hard, but we we only completed three out of five missions. We were a nuclear-capable unit. And that was a no-go. And so I was relieved from my position, and I felt trapped. I had two and a half years left to my Army contract, and I just felt defeated. Mm. I came home to my BOQ one evening. and BOQ. Bachelor Officer Quarters. Got it. Okay. <laughs> and um, I was so discouraged. And I just remember I just started weeping, and I'm, I said to myself, I'm so bitter, and there's nothing I can do about it. I sat down and started writing a letter to my old college girlfriend. We had gone our separate ways, but I was, just, I was just sad, and I just started weeping. And at that moment, I just remembered what my vehicle driver, Stephen, had said to me. And I questioned him, how could Jesus send somebody to hell if he'd never tried to reach out to him? And he said, well, I believe Jesus will try to touch somebody at least once in their life. And so out of the blue, I just kind of shot up a prayer, and I said, Jesus... If you're there, help me. Hmm. Help me. And instantly, I felt, I actually heard something in my spirit just go, hmm. and I just calmed down immediately. And I sat there, I stopped crying, and I said, was that really Jesus or, or just something psychosomatic? Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't know. But that weekend, a movie came to town based on the best-selling nonfiction book of the 1970s called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. Mm-hmm. And so I invited my next-door neighbor, Dan, to go see the movie with me. And we used to go see movies together, westerns or, you know, stuff like that. And he started praying about this because he had read the book. Mm-hmm. And I just knew it had something to do with the end of the world. That's all I knew. 
But when I went to the movie, what shocked me was that he opens by explaining the role of prophets in Israel's history and how if a prophet erred, they could be stoned to death. Hmm. And then he gave case after case of prophecies that came literally true in the history of Israel, but most importantly, in the life of one Jewish man, Jesus of Nazareth. And I realize if that's true, if this is really in the Bible, and these prophecies are really there, only a God could foresee the future centuries in advance so accurately. And this is information I had never known before. Well, it just so happened that the following Monday, we had an emergency deployment reaction exercise where I had to go to the battalion and just sit there for three days doing nothing because in my new job, I didn't have really anything to do. Mm -hmm. So I made the decision. Well, it so happened Dan had the book. He lent me the book, and I made a decision. I'm going to read this book carefully. And every time Mr. Lindsay cites a scripture, I'm going to read it in context. I got a hold of a Bible, and I said, I want to find out if he's just pulling stuff out of thin air, or is this really what the Bible says? And so I, I took me three days to read that little book because I looked up every single scripture and read it in context, sometimes the whole chapter, and it, what he wrote was true to the Bible. And this just thrilled me because for the first time in my life, I believed I had real evidence that I could trust in a God who was there and who wanted to save me and give me everlasting life, which is something I never believed was possible. So that Wednesday night, November 30th, 1977, I got on the side of my bed, opened the back of the book and read the sinner's prayer in the back. And immediately after I prayed that prayer, I felt a conviction to confess a sin. You see, when I was in college, I took a course called Transcendental Meditation, which lots of college students were taking at that time. Mm -hmm. And I later learned through, of all places, Time Magazine, that my secret mantra that I was never supposed to share was one commonly given to college students. And it was actually the name of a minor Indian goddess. And I thought, oh, come on, you know, some mm. minor goddess. That's what I've been saying all this time. And I just confessed. I said, Lord, forgive me for this idolatry. And that was a fruit of, this, of, of Christ coming into my life. Mm. Well, it so happened that Dan was um, connected with a ministry called The Navigators, which operated on military bases and college campuses throughout the United States. And so he brought me in and started getting me going and, and in Bible studies, because without them, I, I would have been a newborn child left on my own. I knew nothing, and, and I would have floundered. But they began patiently discipling me. And within less than a year, I remember on October the 10th, 1978, getting on my knees at night in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and saying, Lord, I love you. I am committed to you, and I want to dedicate the rest of my life to you. And here I am. Mm. I'm into my 41st year as a believer in Jesus Christ, and I love him more than ever. Depression, did it, did it ever come back? Actually, I did have a brief bout of depression as a Christian. Um, it was shortly after I had met Lisa, 1983-84, I was living, I, the Lord had spoken to me to move to Fort Worth, but didn't tell me what to do when I got there. Mm-hmm. He just told me to move there. That's where I met her. Mm-hmm. But I got into a, a sales job, and I just fell flat on my face. I mean, it, I tanked. And for some reason, I didn't 
quit and try something new. And I just backed myself into a corner. Mm-hmm. And it got to a place literally, Chuck, where in early 1984, I was engulfed in a spirit of fear. It's a strange thing, but to feel fear radiating from you. Mm. And what it, you know, and all this time I was listening to Christian radio, reading the Bible, going to church, doing what Christians are supposed to do, but I couldn't seem to shake this thing. And it only it it I had to move back to Seattle, which I did on my birthday of 1984 to attend my brother's wedding of all things. And then the Lord just graciously picked me up because mm. I felt I had failed God completely. And the Lord just graciously picked me up. I, I, I took some Army Reserve short tours because I, I didn't have a job, I didn't have, but I was able to earn money as a, doing short tours with the Army Reserve and just get my feet back on the ground psychologically. And uh, it was during that time, actually, in 1984, where Lisa and I actually had our first date. And then the following summer, I proposed to her. Wow, so. excellent. <laughs> Well, you're listening to Heart of the City. I'm Chuck Olmstead, the director of local ministry, and with me today is Chaplain uh, Henry Fisher, and uh, Henry's sharing his story. So when you came to faith, what did your dad say? You know, he's a pretty open-minded person. He never condemned me for it. Um, can I share a, a funny family sure, story? Sure. When I was growing up, my dad would entertain friends, and he would just, in a, in a sort of amusement, say, you know, if I were a European nobleman, I would have one of my sons be a physician so he could take care of me in my old age. And if I had another son, I'd make him a lawyer to handle my business affairs. And one time I heard him say, and if I had a third son, oh, I'd make him a priest. Well... My stepsister fell in love with a guy named Lauren, who was a journalism student at the University of Washington. But just before he was about to graduate, decided he didn't want to be a journalist, but a medical doctor. (laughs) And he studied, took a crash course, and two years later got into medical school. school, And he just recently retired as an ER doctor. Uh Um, She became a nurse practitioner. So my dad got nearly two for the price of one. Right. My brother went to Stanford University and got all during 68, got caught up in radical politics, dropped out, joined the United States Army, as he told me, to bring the revolution to the United (laughs) States Army with remarkable results, as you can imagine. Yeah. He got out and went back to school, got his degree, and then went to law school. I went into the United States Army as an ROTC graduate student, became a field artillery officer, got saved. And now I'm the priest of the family. Interesting. <laughs> and then in 1992, my father, Dr. Edmund H. Fisher, won the Nobel Prize of Physiology or Medicine and became as close as an American citizen can be to being a noble man. Mm. Isn't that <laughs> ironic? It is. <laughs> So 1984, so what happens next for you? Well, um, after we got, after um, Lisa and I got together, I had a a desire to go to Northern Ireland uh, to be a missionary, or at least to explore possibilities of being a missionary. And I spent five months there from 1985, in 1985, and then Lisa came over and visited to me, and that's where I proposed to her on the 4th of July, and she accepted my proposal three days later. 
Uh, we came back, and I hoped to be – I applied for a visa but never got one. So we, I just kind of sat around in Fort Worth kind of spinning my wheels. Finally, by 1987, I realized, you know, I have a GI Bill, and if I don't use it, I'm going to lose it by 1990. So I made the decision. I think I'm going to look – try to go to seminary. And just – I was working for the 700 Club as a phone counselor at minimum wage, and I heard about somebody coming through – promoting CBN University, as it was then called, right. now Regent University. Mm-hmm. And when I went to that presentation, I, I was kind of thrilled by it because it's not just a seminary. It's a school, a gra- it was at that time a graduate school of many different disciplines, law and journalism, political, political science, education, counseling, and divinity. And I thought I'd like to be in a university environment. So I applied for it, was accepted, and in September of 1987, Lisa and I moved out to Virginia Beach. I spent uh, nearly four years there, graduated in 91, and around about that time is when I uh, made a branch transfer into the Army Chaplain Corps. Um, I like to say that the two best decisions I ever made in the United States Army came after job failure. The first one was becoming a Christian in Mm -hmm. 1971, and the second one was leaving the field artillery to become an army chaplain, and that was the best decision uh, career-wise that I made. I spent the last 16 years of my service in the Army Reserve as a chaplain, so I I served a total of 32 years from um, 1976 to 2008. Mm -hmm. So I want to move us forward uh, to how you became a chaplain uh, at at, uh, the Correctional Center, but uh, I think you had some experiences in Ireland that kind of helped spur you in that direction. Yes. um, I had met a man named um, Clifford Peoples who had, when I'd gone over in 1997 to explore moving over there and doing a doctoral work, uh, I'd given up on being a missionary, but I still had this hope of returning. We had the hope of returning there. And I encountered Clifford strangely through writing a letter to an old friend, and the the Peoples happened to live there. So Clifford took me around for a week and really helped me a lot. So I I really wanted to stay in touch with him. When we moved there in 1999, however, I couldn't reach him. And then one day I'm listening to BBC One on the radio, and they say this, you know, radical uh, paramilitary preacher, Clifford Peoples, was arrested with a pipe bomb in his car by the RUC, Royal Ulster Constabulary. And I was just shocked. And he spent five years in prison at a place called HMP McGabry. Well, when I found out he was incarcerated, I contacted him and offered to be his pastoral visitor because every prisoner is allowed one pastoral visit a month Mm -hmm. in prison. And since I'm an ordained minister, I had the, the right to request, and he accepted. And so we had a a relationship. I tried to go see him at least once a month, and uh, I would um, buy books sometimes to give him to kind of enrich his mind. He actually earned a bachelor's and master's degree while he was a prisoner. A very intelligent man. He was just a very hard-line conservative in, in a very sectarian society. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so you kind of started into prison ministry right there. Yeah. I had also I had also served previously as a uh, volunteer at a jail chaplain in Jackson County Jail in Kansas City. And I had done that for a couple of years, yeah. too. So let's fast forward. So then what happens after Ireland and you come back to the U.S.? Did you start seeking out 
chaplaincy opportunities within the correctional uh, system? Well, not right away. I came to the United States, actually, and did two years on active duty with the U.S. Army as a chaplain. And at that time, I was a lieutenant colonel, later promoted to a colonel, and that was really good pay mm-hmm. for, for a, some guy who was semi-employed before that. But once I, that tour ended, I was looking for a, a career job, and I had applied um, first at four different facilities before I was finally hired. The Washington State Penitentiary, Cedar Creek Correctional Center, which is near Chehalis, Rochester, uh, Coyote Ridge, which is in Connell, Eastern Washington, and finally, when I wasn't looking for a position, I got a call from the religious program manager to say, aren't you going to apply for the chaplain position in Monroe? And I said, oh, I didn't even know that was open. He said, yeah. So I, I quickly rushed my application in, and that was the one where I got hired. And ironically, that was the one where I would have choose, chosen to serve if I could because it's 45 minutes from where my father lives. Mm-hmm. It's close to where my stepsister and brother live. And so I'm very grateful that God said no three times before he finally said yes. Yeah. Without getting into specifics, what's it like being a chaplain at a correctional facility? Well, Monroe has the most uh, robust religious programming in the state of Washington because we're close to King and Snohomish counties, and we have more volunteers. We have 700 active volunteers serving in Monroe. So my duty is to facilitate religious programs in two of our four main units, um, and of of all kinds, Christian and non-Christian. And so we have in the prison uh, Christian, of course, Roman Catholic, Coptic Orthodox, Jehovah Witness, Latter-day Saints, Pagan, Buddhist, Native American, Muslim, Jewish, Messianic Jewish, a lot in two different units, and it keeps me busy trying to keep all of those programs happy. And and frankly, I spend probably 80% of my time serving non-Christian programs because they're underserved by volunteers. Mm-hmm. Our Christian programs are terrific, but they take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Of course, the in fact, I know John uh, Taylor Sand, Sanborn, who who right. kind of introduced the two of us together, and right. part of uh, Lighthouse uh, Prison Ministry. Great and, friend, yeah, and, and a man who's been volunteering in in corrections prison for over thirty years. Yeah, I mean, we have some outstanding senior volunteers, and they have great stories to tell of of their service, and I'm honored to serve with them. Yeah. Well, we've got about three minutes left. So uh, if someone, you know, it's interesting that that you help facilitate non-Christian faiths. And so as you're working through that, it's important to understand that there's that that area of, I guess, respect for, for the other faiths, isn't it? That, that as a believer, while yet you don't embrace that faith, yet there's that... Respect, I guess, is the best word I can say well, sure. to help facilitate that. Well, I, I have great appreciation for anyone who's willing to give of their free time to impart what is most meaningful to them to help other people live a better life. And that's the heart of all of our volunteers. And I, and I, I come to love them mm-hmm. because whether or not they believe in Jesus, they're doing what Jesus said. I was in prison and you visited me. And to the degree that you have done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And these are some of the nicest people uh, I have met. Yes, we have a different worldview, but I have the utmost respect for them hmm. in, in their sacrifice to try to help other people live a better life. Our heart 
is to help people come out of prison, as 97% of offenders do, mm-hmm. better than they came in. Well, we've got about one minute left, and, and I'd just love for you to share how can our listeners uh, pray for, the, for you and for those volunteers that are helping throughout the Washington Correctional uh, Facilities? They can pray for me, um, for us, that we will continue to serve the Lord honorably within the constraints of DOC policy. There's a tension there operating in a prison environment. Um, If I could give one scripture in particular, Mm -hmm. Psalms 24, 7 through 10. It's a personal scripture that I believe the Lord is convicted, where Jesus Christ comes in as the King of glory. My heart is is to see Jesus Christ manifest his presence in a way he hasn't done before. It's not something I can orchestrate, but we can pray that he shows up and do what only he can do, which is bring this wonderful sense of his presence and the conviction that comes with it. Well, Henry, I want to thank you for joining me today on Heart of the City. Our guest today has been Henry Fisher. He's a chaplain at the Department of Corrections at Monroe Correctional facility, and thank you for joining me today on Heart of the City. It's been my privilege, Chuck. Thank you. God bless. You've been listening to this 820 AM, the word special Heart of the City. For more information on how your pastor or your ministry can be featured on 820 AM, the word, call Chuck Olmstead, 206-269-6216. Or go to thewordseattle.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.